In this episode, you'll be hearing from Sai and Amy, whose infant children came close to losing their lives to sepsis. Sai's story is quite hard to listen to, but also really important to hear. His experience of sepsis was through his baby son, Oliver. Sai begins by telling us how life changed for him the moment Oliver was born. I've often described it as I was like, I was one person and then my son was born and then I became someone else entirely. <laughs> um, yeah, as soon as I saw him, it was it was all over. Uh, it was definitely a, a game changer. I, I think I kind of grew up instantly, almost. Um, the things that I used to worry about just seemed insignificant. But the first time I held him, my wife was getting seen to. I held him and I just looked at him. And then when the nurse asked for him back, it had been like 45 minutes. It's like I was abducted by aliens. I just lost time. <laughs> so I was always a worrier about him, like immediately. I, I, the two weeks that I was supposed to take off, um, I'm self-employed, but I selectively took two weeks. Um, after the first week, my wife was like, I think you should go back because you keep checking him every 30 seconds. Oliver was just five weeks old when he began to get poorly. And Sai says at first there was nothing they could really put their finger on. He wasn't very well. Uh, it was a bit run down, just wasn't himself. We took him to uh, our walk-in centre, our A&E doctor had a look at him. And said, oh, I think he's got like a viral thing. Sounds like a bit like a cold. He's a little bit warm, but give him this nasal spray and, you know, he'll be fine. So I thought, right, this time I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to just do as I'm told and everything like that. Everything kind of went normal, put him to bed. And then from about one o'clock onwards in the morning, he was very unsettled, almost like moaning. And he was only five weeks old. So you're kind of getting used to new noises at bedtime and everything like that. But he was clearly distressed and it got to about half past two. And I said to my wife, I'll just get up with him. Got up with him, wouldn't let me put him down to like change his nappy, wouldn't let me move him to give him his nasal spray. He just wanted to be on me. Um, and anytime I moved him, he like moaned, but his arms were hanging down by his sides. And I thought, okay, well, he's just got this cold and, you know, that's what I've been told and he'll be fine and don't freak out. And we just stayed downstairs watching TV. And I think it was about half past six in the morning. I took him into my my wife and I said, he's not right. He's just not eating. He's 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 moaning. He's, he's not letting me change him. And as I like, because he had been on my chest, as I took him off of me and gave him to her, it was the first time that I had a proper look at him. And she was like, I'm not happy with his breathing he's he's breathing a little bit funny and as I looked he was kind of like almost doing like short sharp chest breaths and she said I'm going to phone 111 and at that point I started like you know freaking out a little bit like what do you mean like everything's fine kind of thing and I remember my wife relaying questions to me that she was getting asked on the phone and saying you know how long has this gone on for and I immediately started to feel guilty because I was like something's worth phoning 111 and I've been with him for hours and I didn't make the call earlier so I almost kind of started being quite abrupt with my wife I was like I don't know I don't know like how am I do you know what I mean um, which I later apologized for because I was just kind of spiraling at the time yeah and they said you know we'll send send paramedics out so about you know eight o'clock that morning there's an ambulance outside our house for our five week old and I was like what is going on here try to keep calm paramedics checked him over and said you know everything looks okay and then one paramedic uh, took his heart rate and just handed a note 
to the other paramedic. And I was like, what's that? And she was like, um, his heart rate's a little bit high. So we think he might be fighting something, she said. And I was like, right, okay, what does, what does that mean? And she said, well, we're not too sure, you know, no you know, cause for concern just yet. And then she said, look, we can either take him to the hospital now, you can come along with us or, you know, wait until there's, there's GP opens and you can go there. But I think they're just going to say the same thing we've told you. He's got a little viral something, he's fighting something, but he's going to be fine. And my wife, I could see that she was kind of contemplating. My wife's name's Christina. So if I say Christina from now on, that's who it is. I could see she was contemplating it. And I thought, don't say you want to go to the hospital. Like I'm the one who's like paranoid here. He's got a cold. Like we don't want to take him to the hospital for a cold. And Christina said, no, I think I want to take him to the hospital. And I was like, oh my goodness, we're we're going to look like the most overreacting parents ever. said, okay, I'll take Summer, our daughter, to school. You take Oliver to hospital and then, you know, I'll come and pick you up whenever. So I was walking Summer to school and she said, oh, you know, do you think Oliver's going to be okay? And I said, yeah, he's got a cold, babe. They'll they'll look at him and they'll send him home. The school is literally at the top of our road. It's about a minute walk from our front door. And on the way back, Christina called me saying, you need to get here now. They've just rushed him into another room. I don't really remember then getting in the car or anything like that. I just remember going to the reception and saying, where's my son, Oliver Gregory? And she said, oh, he's just round on this room here. And as I turned the corner, there he was on this big adult hospital bed with all these tubes and, you know, being monitored and everything like that. And I was just immediately just sat next to him and held his hand. And I was like, what's going on? And Christina said, they think he's fighting an infection, quite a serious infection. I remember I was afraid. I was definitely afraid. And I remember having this underlying feeling of almost like anger. Like I know that sounds really strange to say. I was I was uh, obviously very emotional, but like I just couldn't believe that this was kind of happening. It was that whole fear and then that inward sort of anger. Um, but I remember a, um, a nurse came over and he checked Oliver's like screen, checked... Uh, the bag, the fluid and everything like that. And he made a comment like, oh, bless him kind of thing and kind of like stroked his hair. And I said to Christina, I said, who's that? And she said, his name's Ali, who, you know, I get quite emotional talking about. She said, he's the one who kind of like took him off me. And I, I asked what she meant. And she said that he had taken Oliver from Christina and said, I'll just have a look at him. And then he put him on a, a table. Christina was kind of relaying the story. So this is like third hand and said, oh, you know, kind of like examined him and then all of a sudden whisked him off, like just took him and um, got him on the necessary drips, the IV, the antibiotics and everything like that. Like he felt his soft spot and everything like that and knew that it was sunk and he was dehydrated. And yeah, and then they decided they were going to move him onto the children's ward, which I was like, oh, he's, he's not coming home. He's got a bed, he's getting moved. And I remembered like them, Nurse Ali, um, my wife on one side and me on the other side and we were pushing the big hospital bed through the, the hallways of the hospital and I just remember women in particular maybe mums and nans kept looking at him and I just thought don't look at my kid that way like he's going to be fine do you know what I mean like the more the reality starts to set and when the adrenaline starts calming down a little bit you start realising oh this is serious people are kind of no- like he shouldn't be here this is unfathomable 
we went onto the children's ward, but we didn't have, we weren't on the ward. We got our own room because they thought what he might have might be contagious or whatever. And he had like a little baby sort of bed then. I remember him sleeping a lot for the first day or two because he had all these tubes and monitors and everything like that. And a lot of the stay, especially like the early bit thing, the first couple of days kind of blend for me. I can't remember when it was specifically the the, the, the main doctor kind of came in and, and said, he's got a form of sepsis, he's got meningococcal septicemia. And I just remember my wife was holding him at the time and she looked at me and she was started to cry. She said, we could have lost him. And I just... I just kind of stood there. I think I talked about it in the blog with my mouth open and I felt stupid almost because I was a bit like, I don't even know what to say. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, I remember holding onto the rails of the bed because I thought my legs might go here, but we caught it early and he's going to be okay, but we want to keep him here to observe him and do some further tests. That was the first point that they mentioned that they might do a lumbar puncture and to make sure that, you know, meningitis had not gone to his, you know, make sure he didn't have meningitis to make sure he didn't go to his, you know, his brain or anything like that. Sai found the lumbar puncture understandably distressing. He explains how he came to be in the room when it happened. It was on the Sunday. I was feeding him and the nurse came in and said, we're going to do the lumbar puncture. And I said, when? And she said, now. It needs to be now. We've got enough people on the ward now. She said, you might want to stop feeding him because he might vomit. And I remember when she said vomit, like it's just such a hard, throw up is, you know, like, Ugh. but vomit such a violent sort of word. And I thought, what do you, what do you, what, what do you mean? So my wife wasn't there. She was at home sterilizing the bottles. I thought, I'm not going to tell her because she'll race back here. There's nothing she can do anyway. So I carried him in. They said, oh, okay, dad, if you want to go take a walk or walk outside. And I went, no, <laughs> I got, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And then she brought a, another doctor in to try and, you know, tell me you got to, you got to leave. We don't let parents stay in here for this. And I said, you know, please don't make me leave this room. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to come out. I'm just going to stand here, but I need, I need to be in here. Like I can't leave him. He's five weeks old. I have to be in here with him. They knew that it was no good. And I thought, please don't call security on me because I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to make a scene. So anyway, they started and I faced away and I was talking to him. They said, yeah, talk to him, dad, talk to him. Because I could hear him crying immediately. And then I heard the main um, nurse say, stop, 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 stop. So I was like, well, what's going on? Um, and one nurse had never done it before. And in hindsight, it must have been horrendous for her because it was horrendous for me. She couldn't do it. She just couldn't do it. I remember seeing her off to the side with like her head in her hands. And I thought, what is going on here? And then the nurse said, well, we need to do this. We need to do that. And I I almost just went into like drill sergeant mode and said, just tell me what needs to be done and I'll do it. And she was like, he needs to be folded. And once you fold him, once you open up that vertebrae, um, I had to have my hand, my left hand on the back of his nappy and my right hand on the back of his head. And she said, you have to bend him. And once he's bent and that knee was inside, you cannot let him go. And I said, just do it. I was not dad then. I was not emotional. I was Terminator, you know. Um, so they did it and I was kissing his cheek and everything like that while they were doing it. And I remember seeing his spinal fluid come out into that syringe because I was looking and I was kissing him and I was saying, it's all going to be okay. And he was screaming and I kept thinking, 
his throat, his throat, you know, because he was going so red, his hair was wet. He was crying. I was, you know, trying to kiss him, trying to calm him down. And I remember at that particular moment thinking like something in, <laughs> something in me kind of broke. Something was never really going to be the same because I was like, I shouldn't really be seeing my son's spinal fluid leave his body. And then they took the needle out and he was okay. And I said, can I pick him up? Can I pick him up? You know, because I thought, what well, is back, his back. I'm allowed to touch him. And she said, yeah, you can pick him up. Just don't put your hand where he's been injected and he's put a plaster on it. And then that's when all the emotions kind of hit me. You know, that's when I was dad again and just a 29-year-old boy. <laughs> I mean, life doesn't really prepare you for this stuff. Um, and I said, is he okay? Is he okay? And she said, well, I can't say anything yet, but the spinal fluid is clear, which is a good sign. That changed something in me then. Fast forward a little bit. There was a little bit of confusion, but he ended up being diagnosed. No meningitis. His body had cleared the septicemia. Um, he was going to be fine and we could go home. But then that guilt and that feeling of if I would have got him in sooner, maybe he wouldn't have had to have the lumbar puncture. Maybe they could have treated it quicker, whatever. Um, and that fear as well of this is a silent, non-symptomatic for the most part, especially at that age, um, killer and at a very time critical thing. And that guilt didn't go away. It started to get worse the older he got, which was weird. I didn't get over it. I just started to to get worse. I I don't have a, a fantastic relationship with my own dad. I have a great relationship with my mum. So I always wanted to be a, a great dad but yeah i thought i need to be superman like anything that they face i need to take care of it and i think a lot of that kind of came to play in in the lumbar puncture because i was like there's no way that's gonna take an army to get me out of this room guys like i'm not i'm not leaving him you know but yeah there was a ton of pressure and I, like as he started to get older um because i didn't recognize symptoms and stuff like that. even now if you go through the symptom list it's quite similar to other stuff and especially at that age when they can't talk and they can't say what's wrong as he started getting closer and closer to you know 18 months and 20 months and then two and he was you know more energetic and stuff like that something started happening to me where i couldn't sleep i, I was having really bad anxiety at night um and having completely irrational fears and stuff like that. And I remember always having this feeling of I wanted to sleep on his bedroom floor because I wanted to be near him all the time. If anything, I would never miss it again, you know. And that, that you know, kind of led me to a point where my, my wife and my mum said, you need to go and talk to someone professionally. You need to go to therapy because this is not, you know, this is not conducive to good mental health, right? Because I was like, I'm fine and a lot of me didn't want to a lot of me didn't want to get better because I felt like I deserved to feel that way I felt like that was my I missed it so I deserve to feel guilty I deserve to feel you know afraid and I'll never miss it again and that pressure and that punishment I think I, I felt at that point that I deserved to kind of carry it around with me I ended up self-referring. I got a wonderful therapist who diagnosed me with PTSD. The PTSD was more to do with the lumbar puncture. I thought, you know, PTSD was 
people who have been to war and seen really truly horrific things and she said it was a the best way she explained it to me was she was like is imagine you're trying to get all your clean towels and you want to put them away in the airing cupboard and you just scrunch them up and you throw them in and the door doesn't shut properly so now every time you open the airing cupboard the towels fall out she said that's how you've processed that experience you haven't folded it neatly and put it away um, so that's something that we worked on. And the very first thing I said to her, I was like, first thing I need you to know, I don't want to be here. I think I deserve to feel this way. I don't want to get better. I'm here because my mum and my wife have kind of told me to be here. And it got to the point at the end of the session, I didn't want to leave. Um, but yeah, I did work through that. She was incredible. She was wonderful. That was really life-changing for me. And then, like I said, a lot of it, we came down to anxiety and that fear of if I don't watch him 24-7, I will miss something and he will die. I did go through a stage of saying, you know, the worst thing or, you know, it could have been worse. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm worried he'll die. And she said, you need to say that and own it because that's really what you're afraid of. You're worried if you're not looking at him all the time, something will happen and he will die because that was what sepsis then became to me. It was the big invisible baddie do you know what I mean? That if I don't watch out for it, it will take my son. I want to make sure I say this because I, I I want to make sure that he's kind of recognized. Me and my wife were talking about having having another child. And I said, no, there's, I can't have another baby because they're too, I, there's too little communication. I don't know them well enough to know that there might be something wrong. So I just can't. I'm not, you know, I'll never be able to have another child. But we had a conversation. I said, I really... I want one, I want another one, but I'm too scared. So that was a huge point in the, you know, going to the therapy. And I think we were, I was in therapy for about six weeks before um, my wife fell pregnant. So it was almost like it kind of just all happened. Um, and I, t I talked with my therapist through the whole thing. And um, I talked about this nurse, Ali, and I said, oh, you know, that if he hadn't have been put in front of nurse Ali, I don't know what would have happened because a couple of doctors saw him and said, oh, we think it's a viral thing. Whereas Nurse Ali looked at him and said, no, this is something serious. I needed my Oliver to be in front of Nurse Ali on that day at that time. And it just happened that way. My wife fell pregnant. I said, oh, you know, we've got our first scan in a couple of weeks. Blah, blah, blah. My therapist goes, uh, do you think you'll take Oliver to the hospital? And that anxiety came back immediately. I just, I literally went, Never, he will never go to that hospital again. Not that there was anything wrong with the hospital. It was just, I had that fear of if I take him in, someone will say, can I have a look at him? And I won't get him back. He won't leave with me. You know, so I was, that was where I was still at. So it took me a while. Um, but yeah, then we went for our first scan and uh, my wife then had to wait for blood tests. And I said, I'm just going to go for a walk. I'm going to, I thought, I'm just going to see if I can find this nurse alley, right? So I, I'm walking and I've asked a couple of people. And the second woman I asked, she said, oh, no, I don't know uh, anyone on, on A&E. She said, but, you know, it's just down there if you want to go and ask. And I went to A&E, the same doors that we'd come out of. And I was like, oh, my God, these are the doors we came out of. Uh, a lady had come out and I said, oh, is there a nurse alley who works on A&E? She said, no, there wasn't alley, but he left. Maybe if you want to write him a letter. I said, oh, okay. So I was walking back. Uh, and I bumped into the second woman again. She said, oh, did you find um, 
Ali? And I said, no, he used to work on A&E, but he doesn't work there anymore. She went, oh, he? She said, when you said Ali, I thought you meant a woman. She said, I work with an Ali in oncology. He used to work on A&E. Do you want me to see if it's him? And I was like, okay. And she went in and my heart rate just shot up. And then, and then he walked through the door and uh, I got to say thank you to him and I told him I was like you saved my son's life I was like I said we were in the middle of a pandemic so I said I know we're not supposed to I have you know sanitized my I said can I shake your hand I said because he had to be put in front of you um yeah and I said you you took action on it and I said you uh you saved my boy and I was like he said oh that's you know he someone was passing by and he said, can you just stop? And he said, can you just listen to this? Cause it was obviously a uh, colleague of his. And the guy said, Ali, that's you know fantastic. And he, he said to me, you know, he said, babies are resilient. He said, if you know the signs for sepsis, you know what to look out for. You get them on the antibiotics, you get them on the, you know, the IV and everything like that. They'll, they'll be okay. They'll make a recovery. And I said, I know. I said, but I can't let you underplay, you know, downplay what you, you did. And he said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, we've had another scan, got another baby on the way. And he said it was fantastic. And uh, yeah, we actually, funny enough, we actually bumped into him a couple of months later when Oliver had croup, <laughs> ended up back at the hospital and Ali got to see Oliver again. So that was, um, that was huge for me. That was all kind of like, I went to therapy, my wife fell pregnant, I got to thank Ali and then we did the sepsis awareness month and everything like that. So it was a huge kind of turning point there. Oliver now has a new baby brother and the whole family is doing well. Sai says he will always help to raise awareness of sepsis whenever he's able to. Grayson, my, my baby, he's only you know, nearly five months old. I don't typically worry about him as much as <laughs> Oliver. Um, I would say that I'm not irrational, but I still do carry around that, that fear to an extent. I have to kind of keep it by understand how to use it so he had uh, a viral sort of thing just going back a couple of months ago now and uh he was quite run down he was sleeping a lot just very not like him he was warm he was sick um, he had an upset stomach he wasn't eating uh, and i took him to a and e and uh, they checked his obs and stuff like that and they said oh, okay we think he might be you know have like a little viral thing and then i went in to go see like the nurse and she said, okay, I'll just have a little look over. And I went, you need to check him for sepsis. And she went, I don't think he's got sepsis. <laughs> and she didn't laugh like I am now. She was like, oh, what I don't think he has. Like, there's no point of, you know, there's no obvious sort of signs of it. And I said, you see on this little amber list here, because there's like a poster, right, where it's like amber and then red symptoms. I said, this amber list here, he's got three of these. And I said, the last time I took him to a, uh, an A&E, I was told that he had a cold. And then 24 hours later, he was on a drip. I said, I need you to check him. And she kind of looked at me like, you've been through something. I'll check him. <laughs> so she was, you know, she didn't shoot me down or anything like that. She didn't make me feel silly for it. She checked him. She was like, okay, there's no clear or obvious signs. Take him back to the waiting room. We'll get another doctor to see you. And I kid you not, I put him down on the floor when we got to the waiting room and that boy started running around in between the chairs and stuff. And all the mums, like all the older mums and stuff all just looked at me like, yeah, they'll do that. They do that. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe it's not sepsis, but I will never not ask now. I will never not push that. Amy is a mum of eight. 
so she's seen more than her fair share of childhood illnesses. And at first, when her youngest child, Corey, began to feel unwell, she wasn't too worried. But that quickly changed. We had just moved house. We'd moved from Northern Ireland back to Edinburgh on the 14th of December. So, I hadn't finished Christmas. I hadn't finished unpacking. We've got the dog as well. So, eight kids, a husband, a dog, utter chaos. The kids actually went to stay with my mother-in-law on Christmas Eve so that we could go and finish. Not Christmas Eve, sorry, the day before Christmas Eve. So we could finish our Christmas shopping. And then, yeah, Christmas morning was our standard chaos. Wrapping paper everywhere, boxes everywhere, table full of food, house full of alcohol. On Christmas Day, Corey was quiet. Well, more quieter than usual, but we put it down to just being overwhelmed. It was his first kind of Christmas, thinking, oh my goodness, is this my family? But Boxing Day woke up and his temperature was sky high. He wasn't himself. He didn't want to drink. He didn't want to eat. He had awful diarrhoea. After his first dose of Calpo, he did his temperature to come down just a little. And, you know, I've got the seven other kids. I don't panic too much when it comes to illnesses. I'd done my usual. I gave my Calpol. I gave him his ibuprofen. I did try to phone 111 on Boxing Day and I couldn't get through. But I wasn't concerned at this stage. It was more, we didn't have a GP yet with us just moving. Then the day, the next again day, is probably just something wasn't right. Amy says it was something we hear all the time. A mother's instinct that made her go to hospital. Corey's a very boisterous, full-on cheeky chap. Even now, with him fully recovered, you, you look at him and you think, wow. But that day, the day after Boxing Day, I just, yeah, my heart told me. My husband was actually on the phone to 111 and I was in a shower, like quickly trying to wash my hair and just took him in. Because at this stage, he was his temperature was at 40 and was not coming down with anything. And he hadn't eaten either. And he still had the awful diarrhoea. I had the dread of going into a and thinking I'm going to be here hours. But when I went in and explained his symptoms, I didn't even get to sit down. We were straight in. He was triaged. They'd taken his blood sugar levels and they were really low. His heart rate was sky high. His blood pressure was really low and his temperature was still high. So we were sent straight through to a room. And, they, you know, they'd done all their usual observations of him. And at first they suspected um, tonsillitis. His throat was really red and swollen. At that point, I thought, this is great. You know, antibiotics, off we go, on we go home. And a doctor came in and said, no, we really want to run more blood tests. So those blood tests eventually came back and his white blood cells, red blood cells and iron levels were all extremely low, dangerously low. Then we were told we were going nowhere, we were being kept in. And it was the day after that that a doctor came in and said, Corey's got sepsis. They'd already started IV antibiotics as well. He's, it's really strange. I got there at the right time. His infectious disease doctor said if I'd gone in on Boxing Day, I would have been sent home and Corey wouldn't have made it. 
the timing was just right. It was that day as well, though, that I had other doctors coming in talking about putting... At first, they wanted to put a central line through his arm because his, his veins were starting to to go. And I was just like, okay, that's fine. Then he started to... His lymph nodes in his neck started to go really swollen. This is when he started to constantly cry as well. He was still refusing to eat. He was still refusing to drink. He still had awful diarrhoea. And then that's when I felt, okay, something's, yeah, this is bad. And this wasn't the first time doctors had mentioned sepsis to her when it comes to Corey. They actually suspected he had sepsis when he was born. So when he was born, he didn't cry. He just made grunting noises. And the paediatric doctor said that they would give him five hours, or I think about four or five hours, and they would start antibiotics, and they did. And thankfully, back then, all was okay. So, but again, it's something that you, you hear about. You hear it on the news. You see it on online articles. You never think it's going to be you. And it, it was a really surreal... Even now, when I think back, it feels like a bad dream. Because his white blood cells were so low, one of the doctors was concerned about leukaemia. So he had to have um, a bone marrow biopsy done, which thankfully came back okay. He also had a lumbar puncture done to rule out meningitis as well. Even although I say, you know, I get on with things, and I did just get on with it, it got to a stage where I felt like, what's next? What more could possibly go wrong? You know, he was in intensive care for two weeks, and it was up and down every day. You know, some days it was no progress. Some days it was he's making a little bit of progress. And then another day it would be, we're really worried about him again. And then obviously we had the, the leukaemia bombshell. I didn't actually come home for two full weeks. Um, I stayed in the Ronald McDonald suite at the top of the hospital. I couldn't leave Corey. I knew the other children were safe and they were, they were fine. I just couldn't leave his side. Amy says it was a tough situation. And she worried if she was to blame. Everything was running through my head. You know, what, what have I done wrong? How can I have seven other healthy children, but number eight is suffering so bad? I just wanted to trade places with him. He's so little. Minutes before he had to go to surgery to be put into his coma, he was still crying, asking for a banana. And then it was walking into the room and just... It was the silence. The room was still. No sound. And his body seemed to triple in size. And I felt more concerned about the other kids. How are they going to cope? How am I going to cope if the worst happens so that I can still be the best mum for them? How's my husband going to cope? Horrible. So about 12 days into ICU... They changed his antibiotics and they gave him steroids as well. And instantly after the steroids, all the swelling come down from all his lymph nodes and the antibiotics seemed to improve and his infection levels were finally coming down. That was when it was decided that they were going to take off the muscle relaxant medicines and put him onto liquid morphine and diazepam, which he loved. 
He used to get really excited and clap his hands when he seen the syringe coming. In fact, he actually left ICU with a syringe as a toy before going to another medical ward. Oh, it's so funny. Um, and yeah, so that's that's when things really picked up. And then he stayed in a further two weeks to have his antibiotics through... They'd fitted a longer-term central line in his chest. The one in his groin had failed and got infected as well. So the decision was made to put the, the better one in his chest. So he, he was receiving his antibiotics through that for the next two weeks. And then after that, I think it was about 12 weeks, we were going every week for blood tests to monitor his white blood cells. And he's thankfully he's been okay ever since. You genuinely would not think what has happened. He just had his second birthday yesterday. All of us are just standing, staring at him, thinking, what a kid. <laughs> and Corey's doctors are now trying to find out why he developed sepsis. The doctors kept saying we're more concerned the fact that the other children are never sick. They'd done a first lot of genetic testing and that's just searching for everything that could have caused... They want to get to the bottom of why his red and white blood cells were so low. And then they've taken another lot of testing, uh, specifically looking at neutropenia, which is for low white blood cells, now that he's clear from leukaemia too. The infectious disease doctor is also trying to figure out why it was the steroids that... Because basically, once he got the steroids, that was when things massively improved. But he's he goes every three months now for checkups. So they want to keep continuing that for a year. And fingers crossed the testing comes back soon as well. So he had streptococcus pneumonia and Haemophilus influenza. And I think it's streptococcus pneumonia he's actually vaccinated against. So they want to see if he's immune to his vaccinations. And he'd also tested positive for COVID at one point too. Well, it's an ICU. And what's, what's even worse? So when they said to us, so oh, he's tested positive for COVID, you can't see him. And this was at the very beginning. So this is when he's really sick and he's he's in a coma. Me and my husband had to go and get PCR tests done, which came back negative. They had... So basically a normal PCR test had come back negative. But with him being in a coma, they have to take these secretions out of his chest. And that was tested and that came back positive. And it turned out that he'd had the, the Delta variant... But months ago, and it was still just lying in his chest. Now, me and my husband and the seven other kids have never had COVID in two years, but just him. <laughs> his infectious disease doctor said that he will go into a big database and will be used for even just normal medical research and just to have the wider knowledge of what what's going on. When he was going to get his central line removed, his anaesthetist came along and she was the one that was there at the very beginning and was laughing, saying his COVID story is being used for research as they've never seen it before. They've never had a case like that before, so that's getting used for research. 
the sepsis, whatever comes back, it will be used. They also said as well that if something isn't picked up, but maybe years down the line, another case comes along, could help with further research as well. And whilst Corey has made a full recovery, Amy says the experience has left an impact on them. The kids are fine. I'd say it's me and my husband. We are more, we're really cautious. I find that, you know, the kids sneeze. And I think, oh my goodness, what next? Checking temperatures. They all go to bed and I check every single one of them at night <laughs> to make sure that all's okay, there's no temperatures. Um, it's left a, a bit of trauma with everything that happened. You know, everybody was there for Corey, but for me, mentally, there wasn't much support, which I think is probably really important to raise as well for parents that go through it with children with sepsis, is some support after. As it really was just a case of, he's better, we'll see you later. But I think most of all, it's, as a family, all of us are just grateful it's been a horrible journey, but we've come out the other end of it and I'm really grateful for everything that all the medical staff done for Corey and they're still doing and that we were we were lucky enough to come out the other end and he's here still. Yesterday with his, his second birthday, was it was a massive thing because when he was lying in, in intensive care, I really, really thought... I mean, I had to face the reality of I'm not being here. So, yeah, I'd probably see everything as a family going ahead as gratitude. Sai and Amy's stories will no doubt resonate with many parents of small children. We know that they both share our hope that they've provided information that other parents will find helpful. <laughs> 